0: The readings are from John chapter 12, verses 12 to 17, and then on to chapter 19, verses 16 to 22. The next day, a great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. So the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. It was also because they heard that he had performed this sign that the crowd went to meet him. The Pharisees said to one another, You see, you can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and said to him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the father will honor. Now, my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour.
1: Jerusalem welcomes a new king. A report by Simon Woodman, your sky blue news correspondent in Jerusalem today, Sunday the 10th of April in the 33rd year of the common era. This report is being monitored by the authorities. Today was the day when, after many years of unquestioned dominance, the tight and cruel grip of the Herodian regime began to look seriously under threat. For the past six decades, the Herod dynasty has ruled Israel-Palestine with a rod of iron. The heirs to so-called Herod the Great have clung to power through an uneasy alliance with Rome and a pattern of often brutal dominance of the local religious and political leaders here in Palestine. The military police have supported this Roman puppet dictatorship with an enthusiasm that has left ordinary Israelis in daily terror of reprisals. Economic oppression has combined with random sporadic violence in the south, while ethnic cleansing in the north of the country has been widely reported, if so far unsubstantiated. Punishment beatings and summary executions are the norm, with even the most petty of crimes being punishable by death. In the ten years I have been reporting from Jerusalem, I have seen several attempts at overthrowing the Herodian regime, and they have all ended in tragedy and violence. It seems there is little that unarmed, everyday Israelis can do against the military might of the occupying Roman soldiers. And as long as the Herods remain in favor with Rome, their future as leaders of this nation seems secure. Not since the days of the Maccabean revolt, nearly 200 years ago, has anyone come even close to successfully challenging the powers of Greece and Rome in this country until today. That is the events of earlier today represent possibly the brightest hope for liberation and peace in this war-ravaged land that I have ever seen. For the last three years or so, a man called Jesus, a religious leader from Nazareth, has been slowly but steadily establishing his power base. He has publicized himself as a peacemaker and attracted a wide following and an even wider reputation as one of the few political figures of our time capable of delivering on the promises he makes. His key speeches have centered around issues of justice, reconciliation, and peace. And he is widely hailed as the man most likely to overthrow the Roman occupation and displace the Herodian puppet dynasty. Although Jesus has been in and around Jerusalem before, it seems that today's events have marked a decisive change in his approach. Up until this point, Jesus seems to have gone out of the way to keep his campaign low key. He has kept continually on the move, never staying in any one place long enough to attract the serious attention of the authorities yet still making sufficient impact to increase his popularity and standing with the person in the street. Today's visit to Jerusalem, however, was anything but low-key. This morning, Jesus entered Jerusalem in the style of a victorious war hero, taking possession of a captured city. Word seems to have got around that he was on his way. And the jubilant crowds turned out in their thousands to hail his arrival, strewing his path with palm branches as one would do for royalty. It seems difficult to imagine the authorities will allow such actions to remain unchallenged for long. So it seems that Jesus is finally ready for the long anticipated confrontation with the powers at the heart of the Herodian regime. It must surely be in his mind that the time is now right to engage with the Governor Pilate and King Herod. And I predict that they will not give in without a fight of some kind. Today, however, there was no possibility of a violent outcome. The crowds were so numerous and so fevered in their excitement that any moves on the part of the authorities would simply have resulted in mass anarchy. It was fascinating to watch the representatives of the establishment sitting helplessly by while the mob welcomed this northern preacher as their all-conquering king. I have to admit, though, that in spite of his undoubted popular appeal, I find it hard to comprehend just how Jesus is going to implement the promises he has made. He has often spoken of his coming kingdom, which he claims will be a place of peace and stability. And this vision of a bright future has been instrumental in ensuring both him and his followers such wide appeal. However, such a kingdom will surely not be established without the shedding of innocent blood. It's a well-known historical fact that the replacement of one regime with another is always a violent and bloody act, with innocent people being hurt along the way. Indeed, in the early days of my reporting career, when I covered the front line of the Roman occupation of Gaul, I saw this scenario played out many times. And the prospect of it happening here in Jerusalem is something I find hard to imagine. Yet, nevertheless, Jesus has marched on Jerusalem, claiming he's about to establish his kingdom of everlasting peace and stability. And it looks as if the crowds are going to back him all the way, if the demonstration of support that we saw earlier today is anything to go by. Possibly the strength of the popular appeal which Jesus has attracted can be accounted for by the Israeli sense of nationalism occupation has never sat easily with the inhabitants of Israel, Palestine, in spite of the many obvious benefits which Roman rule has brought with it. The Jews still hanker after a king of their own, which they believe to be their divine right. They look to their kings as their earthly representatives of their God. And it is in recognition of this that the Romans have allowed the Herodian regime to rule Israel on their behalf in the hope that the Israeli population will be more easily controlled by a Jewish king than by a Roman governor operating on his own. However, Herod Antipas, as with his ancestors before him, has made it abundantly clear that his first loyalty rests with the power that keeps him in authority and that the fate of the Israeli people is only of secondary concern compared with keeping the Romans on side. So now Jesus has played his hand. He's entered Jerusalem in the style of a conquering king coming to an occupied city. And it seems that the people of that city are ready to hail him as their true king and to unite behind him. To overthrow the Roman controlled state. Jesus has already been speaking in graphic terms about his new kingdom. And many people are keen to see it established as quickly as possible. However, my suspicion is that there is violence to be done before this so-called kingdom of peace will finally begin to emerge. So will Jesus' peacekeeping mission be successful? Will he be able to avoid the shedding of innocent blood? Will those people who long for his coming kingdom back him all the way to its establishment? What does Jesus have in mind when he describes himself as the Prince of Peace? Only time will tell the answers to these difficult and challenging questions. We shall have to watch the events of the next week closely. One thing we can be sure of is that Jesus never plays by the same rules as anyone else. So I suspect there is a lot more drama to be played out before this kingdom. He is promising finally comes into being. Simon Woodman reporting from Jerusalem.
0: John chapter 19. So they took Jesus, and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, with Jesus between them. Pilate also had an inscription written and put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Latin and in Greek. Then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write King of the Jews, but this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written.
1: The King is dead, a report by Simon Woodman, your Sky Blue News correspondent in Jerusalem today, Friday the 15th of April in the 33rd year of the Common Era. The events of the last few days have in many ways played out their predictable path. As many commentators expected, the northern rebel Jesus was arrested almost as soon as he was out of sight and reach of the crowds. And a series of hurried legal proceedings were arranged overnight in order to ensure that his conviction was secure according to the laws of both the Jews and the Romans. It's certainly been a week that those of us who have witnessed it firsthand will never forget with the balance of power swinging back firmly in favor of the establishment and away from the people power movement whipped up by Jesus. But there have been tantalizing opportunities for it to have gone differently. Many are of the opinion that Jesus could so easily have escaped. It certainly wouldn't have been hard for him to slip out of the city to take refuge with his supporters in Bethany whilst regrouping and rebuilding his popular support base. But even more intriguing, it seems likely that if he had played things differently over the last few days, he could in fact have achieved his objectives this week. Just last Sunday, the whole city seemed on his side, ready to rise up and overthrow both the Roman occupiers and the Herodian king. There is this sense of missed opportunity among the population that we could today have been celebrating the coronation of King Jesus, the King of the Jews, rather than watching his public torture and execution. There is a sense that today could have been a good day for Jerusalem rather than a day of crushing disappointment and shattered dreams and i can only conclude that much of the blame for this outcome must lie with jesus himself it has almost seemed as though he was willfully choosing the way of the cross insisting on carrying his own crossbeam to the place of crucifixion in a symbolic but futile show of strength and independence but it was surely his display of arrogance before pilate that finally sealed his fate And again, one cannot help but wonder what the outcome might have been if he had chosen a path of contrition rather than defiance. It has felt at every stage as though Jesus knew what he was doing, what he was trying to achieve. And it has become clear that his vision of a new so-called kingdom of God was not what most people thought it would be. Far from a geopolitical reality, a new kingdom based in Jerusalem, a renewed kingdom of David, as people started calling it. Jesus seems to have rather envisaged his kingdom as more of a spiritual entity, an ideological kingdom of inspiration, an idea that he believed could change the world. Looking back, the clues were certainly there in his rhetoric, his language of peace, his emphasis on love, his uncompromising calls to repentance and sacrifice. But even his own followers seemed to think that this was all part of a wider plan to build popular support and ultimately to overthrow Rome. And watching him today, embracing death without fear, as if he had been expecting it all along. I have to ask the question of whether Jesus did in fact know what he was doing. Rome has demonstrated time and again that it is all powerful. Every single attempt to rebel against Rome has led in the end to failure. The empire is supreme in its dominance. And perhaps the path to its eventual defeat lies not in a show of strength, but through an undermining of its ideology, a delegitimizing of its authority. You see, even though I have now seen this Jesus die, I cannot escape the conviction that his words now have a life of their own. It is surely not without significance that Pilate, of all people, demanded that he be crucified with a sign above his head, proclaiming him to be the King of the Jews, a sign written not just in the local language, but in Latin and Greek too. It's almost as if Pilate's time with Jesus at the trial has shaken him. It's as if he's in some kind of awe or fear of Jesus and doesn't quite believe that even crucifixion will end this matter. And I find myself wondering what all Jesus talk of life really means in the face of a regime dedicated to death and domination. We are so used in our world to stories of horror And we become immune to the images of death that we see almost every day as yet another person is executed at the gates of the city. So what's so special about this execution, one more failed pretender to David's throne? But there is something different. This last week has been a week like no other. From the moment of Jesus' triumphal entry last Sunday, things have been so different in the city. For the first time in generations, there has been a sense of hope, a sense that things might be different one day, a desire to remake the world in a better way. This kingdom that Jesus spoke of, a kingdom of love, life and liberty, seems so at odds with every other kingdom in our world, and yet it seems so compelling, so inescapable, so pervasive and persuasive. It seems impossible to imagine that this vision of a new kingdom has died today. I know it's said every good cause needs its martyrs, and I wonder if the death of this Jesus may not in fact be the end but rather the beginning of something new coming into the world. Time will tell. But for now, this is Simon Woodman reporting from Golgotha.
2: One phrase that stood out to me was that um, Simon said that Jesus attempted to build popular support. So the the political word that comes to my mind is populist. I teach politics and I was in a conversation uh, with a diplomat last week, who said, what's a populist? And I think there are four definitions of a populist um, politician. And I think Jesus in this story fits them all. Nostalgic, charismatic, anti-establishment, and as someone who seeks to reset the narrative. Populist politicians are in the ascent in many countries. Viktor Orban just uh, had electoral victory in Hungary last week. It is French presidential elections today in which the populist Marine Le Pen is challenging uh, Emmanuel Macron for the uh, presidency of France. Nostalgic, these populist politicians try to talk about a golden age that's been lost. Let's go back, let's reset and renew the perfect situation. Jesus calls on creating the kingdom of heaven as it was in the time of David. It's a nostalgic vision. Charismatic, they draw crowds. They get a lot of attention on social media. Anti establishment. The key point about populist leaders is they say, I am representing you, the people, against the establishment, against the legal system, against the civil service, against the people who've got vested interests, the big business, the globalists, the powerful people. I'm of you. We, the people, will rise up. When I'm your leader, then I will be representing you, the people. And they are defiant in the face of the establishment. As Simon pointed out, Jesus was defiant in the face of Pontius Pilate and the establishment, and the establishment reacted with public torture and execution. And then the last point about the populists is that they attempt to reset the narrative. They want everyone to see the story told their way. Now, sometimes if they get to the positions of power, they do this in quite a brutal way. So, for example, Viktor Orban has basically closed down all the um, media in Hungary, which is critical of the way in which he runs things. In India, um, Narendra Modi, who is also a populist prime minister, is resetting the narrative to everybody believes in this narrative about Hindu nationalism and the idea about uh, a multi-ethnic society is being uh, silenced. And in a way, I would say that Jesus' greatest achievement in this story is that he resets the narrative. The story is told in Jesus' light, and it's been
3: told that way for the next 2,000 years. Thank you, Duncan. So I don't know whether Liz or... Um, Liz, thank you, Liz, you to go? Yeah.
4: <laughs> um, I, I have to admit that I certainly Simon's first kind of uh, narrative um, I found quite disturbing in light of what's been going on and I guess politically you know and, and across the world in so many areas and I I, fu- I found myself thinking about the Palm Sunday um, story in a slightly different way to what I normally do I'm <laughs> I'm really used to <laughs> I think it's point at you now Duncan. (laughs) Uh, I'm really used to um, Palm Sunday being that nice Sunday school story so you know we hand out palm crosses and we we think about palm branches and we think about donkeys and in some ways it fits in quite nicely with the whole Easter agenda and you know that it and so suddenly then being Face to face with the idea that we're talking about something quite political, and we're talking about you know the possibilities of overthrow, and we're we're talking about then moving on to the cross. And I think that in my head sometimes I disconnect Palm Sunday with the crucifixion because, like nice donkeys and you know palm branches. Um, so for me, just thinking about you know what's happening in the world at the moment, um, I found it quite disturbing to suddenly be faced again with the idea that Palm Sunday isn't that nice story necessarily that there are there's other stuff going on there. Um, and that really got me thinking just about perspective, really. And, and I was left with a lot more questions about well, what does what Jesus did, what does that actually mean? And what does peace mean in our current context? And what does um, Palm Sunday and then, and then this mean to, to what's happening in the world and, and to me, um, and just one aside, we were down uh, near Tower Bridge, um, at Hayes Galleria and there's this lovely little bench that you can sit on and there's a few of them dotted around, I think there's some in Covent Garden where there's bunnies and there's there's eggs and there's loads of flowers and it's an Easter bench you can sit on and have your photo taken. And I actually turned to Simon and I said, because that's what Easter's is about, isn't it? That's, that's totally what Easter is about. And yeah, it's it kind of made me think. Well, yeah, what is this about and what impact does that have to have for me now? What does what does it mean to to take a different route that people aren't expecting? And for the person who was on that road being hailed as potentially a a new leader to actually then be crucified, what does that mean for me?
3: Thank you, Liz. It's really, really interesting. I think it just has brought up lots of emotions this uh, week hasn't it with what's going on in the world yeah. over to Turner. Um
5: there were a number of thoughts that uh, came to mind for me the first thing maybe come to this right?
3: that's
5: okay. is that any better okay thank you um there were a number of thoughts that uh struck me first of all early on in simon's first piece he said this report is being monitored by the authorities and there was something about that that chilled me, that absolutely arrested and chilled me. It's the idea of not being free to just simply say or think or be ourselves. Uh, the idea of these authorities, which is a slightly sinister air, be it either an internal or external authority, that that just determines how the narrative is to be presented as opposed to perhaps being the truth. So that, that struck me, the idea of being monitored by the authorities. And two, the the second thing I was thinking about was the expectation of what Jesus's actions and Kingdom would look like and how how the expectation was it was going to be some kind of geopolitical entity. But where these alien and uh, dominating forces were occupying a, a country, again, I find myself thinking, well, what about each one of us? What alien and powerful forces occupy us, occupy me, occupy you? Um, what fears what damaging thought patterns, you know, occupy us and keep us submissive and in bondage to them as opposed to living freely as children of God, uh, as children of the Prince of Peace. And the final thing that just just popped into my head, that Simon made clear in his second piece was the death of the expectations of how things were supposed to be how things were going to play out and those expectations had to die in order for uh, new ways of living and thinking and and perceiving God and the kingdom of God could come into being and um, again I find that very challenging Uh, what expectations of life death God the kingdom of God church faith what expectations do I have that perhaps are better served by dying in order for something new and fresh uh, to come into being that will reveal more of the life and love and liberty of Christ in me and in each one of us and in the church. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Thank you very, very much to our panelists to Duncan to Liz and to Dermot.
5: Let us pray.
3: Lord, we come before you this
5: morning and bring you our prayers. Words, thoughts, feelings, things that have no language and cannot be expressed yet are understood by you. Thank you. We hold before you our world, a world that feels less familiar than it has done previously a world that is shaken by a pandemic becoming endemic by wars uncertainty strife lies deception violence afar that violates us too so much so that we try to limit our exposure in order to try somehow to remain intact and then we can feel guilty for doing so We are aware of the fragility of life, of societies, of borders and lands. We find ourselves disorientated, disquieted, and our spirits anxious. Lord, we offer you what is in our hearts today. All that we feel, all that we can own, all that we desire for our world. We long for peace, an end to violence, an end to lying, to untruths, to wanting to believe lies. We long for peace, joy and justice, for all to feel that they belong somewhere and that they belong to someone. We pray for these things. We pray for our church we offer to you our fragile selves and pray that you will hear the cry of our hearts let your kingdom come let the government and rule of jesus be made evident alive and real on this earth in our church in each one of us holy spirit please do your work to grow us into your people to be moved by the things that make for life for your life for the common good see us lord and may your gaze look us out of pain and may we see you lord and become like you to love live trust and laugh with the ease and confidence in you of our lord jesus and so we come to palm sunday to be reminded again of the faithfulness of our lord jesus of his obedience to your will to be reminded again of the fickleness of the mob and the mob mentality of empty adoration adoration given from the teeth out to be reminded of a silent donkey carrying the one who spoke everything into being help us remember and help us to hear and see new truths in this familiar account of your entry into Jerusalem in the face of death determined to defeat death thank you bring us back to truth to the language of truth and to the voice of truth the person of truth bring us back to jesus you who are truth who by being truth can set us free we turn unfilled to you again and ask you to fill us with your spirit with your truth with your life with your mind may we truly be people of the truth almighty and eternal god in your tender love towards humanity you sent your son our savior jesus christ to take on himself our flesh And to suffer death on the cross grant that we may follow the example of his patience and humility and also be partakers of his resurrection through your son jesus christ our lord who lives and reigns with you and the holy spirit one god now and forever amen
3: we pray for one another Those online, those here together, we pray for each other in this um, blessing which I've taken from Psalm 118. We thank you that you have answered us and have become our salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Send us out into the world in the power of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.